Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Here's a new twist, if you will, on the Global Medical Device Podcast. As many of you know, Greenlight Guru has been doing roadshows now for for a bit. And um, we're um, taking some of the conversations that we're having at these roadshow events and turning them into podcast episodes. And uh, this particular episode is with a colleague of mine at Greenlight Guru, Tom Risch. Tom Risch is one of our medical device gurus in he sat down and spoke with Chris DuPont. Chris is the CEO at Galen Data. And they talked a lot about software and software as a med device and all the criteria and requirements and design controls that one should be focused on during that process. So enjoy this special episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is the Medical Device Podcast. Normally you're used to listening to John Spear. He's at home in the ice-covered Indianapolis, and we're in sunny California. So my name is Tom Risch. I am a medical device guru at Greenlight Guru. I help our customers implement quality management systems, get their design and risk documented in a way that will allow them to to release their product. And, and today we have Chris DuPont. He's actually here for the second time. He's been on a podcast before, and we're, we're glad to have him for a very important topic of understanding design controls for software as medical device. So thanks for being here, Chris. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And before we get started, go ahead and speak a little to what you do at Galen Data. So Galen Data, let's back up a little bit. So most medical devices today are not connected to the internet, and that's a fact. And so I always like to repeat that because it's it's not obvious, is that most medical devices today are not connected to the internet. The company I worked for that was founded 25 years ago still isn't connected to the internet. And so, but we're seeing an emerging market. Uh, most people that grow up in today's world, it's a connected world. And so about three years ago, companies were coming to us to ask to build custom one-off FDA-compliant clouds, and it's very expensive, over half a million dollars to a million, and then nine to 12 months to build these one-off systems. And so we, we saw an inflection in the market in that uh, there was a, starting to be a real need for medical device connectivity, and not a whole lot different than what Greenlight, you built a platform. When you, when you go out and stand up your quality management system, you don't build the software pieces, the applications that you need to manage the quality management system. You go out and, and use a, a platform like uh, Greenlight. So Galen's no different is that with the one, well, same exception as at Greenlight is that we are a configurable, scalable, uh, FDA-compliant software platform that makes it easy to connect medical devices to an FDA-compliant cloud. We do it at a fraction of the cost and time. And we're also a staging platform for predictive analytics and we will have early integration into electronic medical records. And so the, the exciting part as an engineer is once you get the data, you'll be able to predict when that bearing and that heart pump will fail three months in the future. And you'll have all the devi- uh, population of those devices. That's not being done today. And I mentioned earlier is that there is an equivalent of a check engine light. We all drive modern cars. The check engine light goes on. It might say that you have low oil pressure or you just have to go and get an oil change. That doesn't exist in today's medical device world, um, but that's changing. And Galen Data wants to facilitate that check engine light. They want to not only when you need to change that oil or recharge that battery in that medical device, they want to predict when you're going to have a lead break or high impedance or there's electronic f- uh, failure in that device. 
We get a lot of customers or prospects that come to us with software as a medical device. And being more traditional mechanical background, I honestly can say I get a little nervous when they come to me and ask for design and risk advice. Uh, it's very clear to me in a traditional me mechanical sense what a design input is, a design output is. For software, it just isn't as clear. However, you would say you can treat software as a medical device just like you can a regular mechanical device. Absolutely. Uh, software as a medical device. Uh, have you guys heard that saying, software as a medical device, before? Um, it absolutely is. And so you, 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 you get no breaks. You have to do, and, more, and not only that, though, it, I think what's difficult about software, it's malleable. It, it can change over time. Um, you can touch a physical device. You can't touch software. And, you know, software is easy to make a mistake. And so I think it's super important to follow the design control process from project planning from the very beginning all the way to design transfer to manufacturing uh, for a medical device. Speak a little more about the design control process or really just the development process. I know different software companies have different philosophies. There's agile, there's different durations of sprints, uh, there's the traditional waterfall. Speak to what you think might be some of the best methods to use. So it's at the planning stage. <clears throat> if, if we spend the time, where we make mistakes is when we miss requirements. And so a typical effort is we start with features, user requirements, bullets. Uh, we, we get contacted all the time by large medical device companies, small medical device companies, a physician like today, and, and I always suggest start with a bulleted list. You know, how would you describe this product to somebody else? And then we'll spend three or four weeks taking those bullets and turn them into low-level software requirements. Because you can't test it if you don't have a requirement. And then the requirement also needs to stand alone. Uh, a user requirement, a bullet might be, it shall be a handheld computer. Well, your next level requirements is it needs to be five, five inches wide, seven inches tall, and a half inch thick. You can verify that. Uh, but if we get the requirements right the first time or put the effort in, more likely not the software falls out from those requirements. And then you have, let me talk about independence of tests. So the other big advocate that I, I'm big on is independent of tests. So the folks that design the software, and true with medical devices too, shouldn't be the one testing it. So you need biomedical engineers, manufacturing engineers, all different types of engineers that are independent because as we develop the software, we get blinders. We know how it should work, but we need that independence of somebody that knows the requirements, but they're not developers. And the way they test, uh, it, it, it puts you in a position of strength and that you're more likely to find bugs and issues if you have that independent of test. When you're looking at the overall design control process, I can speak pretty well to what a user need is, what a design input is, software requirements, those sorts of things. I struggle when it comes to design outputs, defining those, and also maybe what's the difference between verification testing and validation testing. So can you help clarify some of those terminology? Yeah, so verification is easy, validation is hard. So verification is you, know, you, you test to the spec, and, then, and, and you define your spec, and then you test to it. Uh, and part of the output process is the verification uh, use cases that test the, uh, the requirements. I think validation is hard because you're trying to anticipate how the user will use it. And you always have to limit the end, limit the number of people that will use it. And that's always artificial. And so we do much more 
verification because we're the design shop. And often the customer will do validation out in the field, out in the use environment. With that being said, uh, we do early validation. I'm a proponent of early validation. If you can do wireframes and take those out into the physician's world, and in our case, usually the physicians are our customer, uh, or we, that's the very first thing we do. And that is validation. You take wireframes out and you document that. And so when you get audited and the, uh, and the auditor says, have you done any validation? We have. It's not complete validation, but it is, it is in a start. And then we often create a, a GUI mock-up, and we take that out in the field. And you'd be surprised. And one of the things is, we, here's our software. How would you use it? And you would be surprised how people try to use your software or device, and you've never anticipated that. And that is validation. And validation is usually across at least the bullets or those user requirements. Yeah, and so I know you talk a lot about the value of an early prototype. People don't like to document this stuff early. Uh, why is it so important to have an early prototype that you are validating and, and testing? So when I'm in the service business, one, it, it, it captures the state of the design at that point, and then you issue change requests. So from a practical point of view, you, from the early concepts, you develop requirements in architecture and design, and then the, the, the change requests. But I think the most important thing is, is that early prototypes, those early architecture documents, especially in a large company where you have uh, clinical, manufacturing, regulatory, those are contracts that you make with each and one of those departments. Regulatory. Regulatory is big. Uh, as engineers, we like to build the biggest and coolest thing, but you have to consider the regulatory pathway because that, that thing might throw you into a two-year regulatory cycle, and you have to consider the regulatory pathway. I see some heads nodding out here. Uh, and so the earlier you can document that, and then one that is just objective evidence showing to the auditors, to the FDA, to your management that you've documented design, and you can share it with the other team members, other departments that, you know, that are within the same goals that you're trying to achieve, but they're mechanical, electrical, uh, clinical, uh, patients, doctors. I think it's the earlier you can document that and get that out into the field, the better product you'll have. Yeah, the documentation comes up a lot with software engineers because they're used to using other tools, maybe like Jira or or GitHub, or they have test testing tools to track things. How do you connect all of those tools and the different things that they're doing outside of maybe your QMS or or what people would think is out of your QMS, and how do you bring that into a traceable uh, system? So I think. I'm an advocate of tools and technology and innovation wherever you can. And so you can still use those tools. And, but you, and you don't, if you're using one of the, one, you, if you bring a tool into your shop, you, you, you need to verify that it works as prescribed, or if not, you have exposure. And so you document the pieces of the tool that you use, and you can use Jira, you can use Git, uh, you, can, you can use any type of technology out there. Uh, one of the things we used to do is, is, is when, we, when we tested an application that came from a compiler, we would say that through our requirements and our verification, we, we tested the outputs of that compiler as specified for, by our requirements and were within the bounds of those requirements. Uh, but you, it is a tra Excel spreadsheets. Has anybody been caught by Excel spreadsheets using those in quality or something where you didn't verify them? It's easy to do, and, that, and that's an easy trap. Um, and the FDA is, is, is getting more and more on the tools we use, and 
the lines are a little more blurred between the business and using quality tools. If you use an Excel spreadsheet to track components in the manufacturing field and you have a little algorithm that maybe rolls it up into a, another spreadsheet, you have to verify that and you have to have docu documented evidence requirements, test cases that you've, you have that piece of tool documented. But don't shy away from using tools because in the end, in the end the tools make us all more efficient and I think in the end develop, allow us to develop a better product. Yeah, there are a lot of tools. There's a lot of work that's being done. Different things are going on in parallel. Software teams are updating things even daily sometimes. And so what's the right balance of doing all that work, but also getting it documented in a way that you'll feel comfortable presenting that to an auditor? That's really, I wouldn't tell you that, I wouldn't sit here and try to set the cadence for your development team. The development team needs to set their own cadence. If there's a hardware piece tied to it, your cadence is going to be a little slower. But very, very often, the, the, the firmware or the application software will have a higher revolution of change than that hardware just by the nature of the business. But you know, if you're asking me if we should update our, our software every day, no, because you have to keep the documentation. Now, there's difference. You can build, you can do builds every day, but then you have build releases. So you have some tools that you can, you can play with. But my only caution is if you're using these rapid development cycles, which I think are a good idea, your documentation also has to revolve at the same revolution as your development cycle. So in the mechanical world, a lot of times we launched our product. We had seven or eight binders full of paperwork that we called the DHF. We put it in a filing cabinet. We weren't planning to make any changes to that product after we launched it, hopefully. Sometimes we had to. Software, though, however, you're, you're going to be making changes all the time. And how do you make sure that you have a good DHF that you can maintain as a living file as auditors or regulatory bodies would expect to see? My canned answer is you go back to your SOPs. What do your SOPs say? So, you, you, again, you, you document what you do and you do what you document. And so we spend a lot of time on, a, on our design control process. And it's, it's a fairly lengthy design control process. But you follow your procedures. The short answer is, and I think the correct answer is for the regulatory folks in here, is that you follow your procedures. If you don't like your procedures, change your procedure, evolve your procedures over time. But in the end, uh, you have to follow your procedures, and, and you, you can do whatever you want within bounds of the standard. You want to, of course, you follow the standards, but the standard just gives you guidance. You can do a thousand things more detailed and still meet the standards. Yeah, and so I know you work with many clients uh, with different products and that sort of thing. Do you help them create that DHF or, or give them best practices for that, or do you own it for them, or do they take it? So back one morning, I was doing more service. Galen is a product. Uh, and so what I like about that is that we have control and everything's the same within that product structure and our SOPs. But it is a challenge sometimes when you're in the service business. Um, you, you come to me and, and you need a physician programmer, but you want me to work within your quality management system. You know, as a service provider in a previous life, we, we would do that. Uh, or you'd come to us and say, we have a product and we want you to develop within your quality management system. And so that would be my preference because I have the most control. Sometimes there's a hybrid where we transfer documents from our quality management system into another. Uh, there is no right or wrong answer other than that, that both companies were in a joint agreement like that 
it can be tricky. And, but there are ways to do it to absorb our artifacts or our, our documentation and then at some point transfer them over. Um, but again, your procedures and SOPs should allow for that. It's going back to the verification thing we talked about earlier, you said that you need to have independent verification testing. In fact, that's laid out in 62304. There's some guidance around that. ISO 1345, FDA Part 820 are pretty clear to people who have been in the industry. Software seems a little grayer to me. What are some of the things to know from 62304 or really any software guidance that might be a little different than maybe the old uh, traditional standards? I always like to share the story. As a, as a young engineer in a class three medical device, we were quickly told that CFRs are law and IOC and ISOs are standards. And they trained us that, and again, the medical device industry is different in that CFRs are law, and if you knowingly break a, break a law, I, as a design engineer, could go to jail. And then that did put the you know, fear of God in me, so to speak. Uh, but even in the CFRs, they're still super high level. Uh, but 6203 is, is a great standard. It's pretty detailed. Uh, and I think if you follow that standard and you... you, you take your SOPs, your design controls, and use that standard 1345 and 6234, I think you'll have good coverage. And there may be exceptions to standards, and, but you can put that into your procedure. Um, where you get in trouble is where you do something that's not documented. And the FDA says, well, you're not doing this, or an auditor, and you don't have documentation. As long as it's documented, you have much better defense on, on what you're doing. Yeah, so a big thing, uh, speaking of regulations, is risk. And again, risk seems like it's very easy to determine when you have a product that's maybe implanted or that's being used directly on a patient. With software, speak a little bit about when you should start risk in the process and things you should think of. Uh, uh, yeah, so if you have a laser and you overpower a laser or you leave a, a laser on too long you can do you can do physical damage and and a lot of people understand and see the obvious benefits of doing a risk analysis on a tool like that uh, some companies that come to us that aren't used to the medical device they neglect to do risk analysis on software again i go back to software is a, software is a medical device uh, even though you can't touch it or feel it if you mess up you can kill people and there's been documented instances of, of software you know hurting people and so i think the earlier you do the risk analysis and have it documented across joint teams, uh, the better position you are. So uh, simple things such as risk analysis is, you know, do I run out of disk space or I run out of memory? Or um, if I don't display the right warning message, uh, you know, you also have to take color blindness. And so you just can't use color as a distinguisher for harms. And so you have to have other ways to do that too. But that all goes into your risk activity. And you don't just do it once. You, you do it throughout the life cycle of the product. But it's no different than a physical device is that we have to do risk analysis very similar to a, a physical or mechanical device. And with risk, I know with software, sometimes there's that additional step where you have to classify your software. I'll be straight up. I don't even know where to start with that. Yeah, so A, B, and C classifications... Um, and, and sometimes that's hard. And then if you have interfaces, and what is an interface? What is a library? Uh, but, and that's, again, unique to, I think, medical device. 
is that you sit down and, and we've had lots of discussions. Do you do it at the method level? Do you do it at the object level? Do you do it at the file level for this ABC classifications? In the end, though, I think just doing the exercise and in, in picking out the components, and you can do it at a source line, which is difficult, but if you do it at a method level, a library level, I think the most important thing is you go through that exercise, you identify the low, medium, and high risk of your software, and then you address accordingly, focus on the high-risk areas, and you try to design that out. Try to design out and take that high-risk software into a lower, a lower category of risk. With mechanical products, again, you have a bill of materials that's very straightforward. You, when you're done with your design controls, everything's verified, validated. You put together that DMR, you hand it over to whoever's going to make it, and, and they start making it. I know with software, there's some different terminology, SBOM, for example. Um, how does that look versus a traditional mechanical product? So I think probably most people in this room know what BOM is, a bill of materials. It's what you need to build uh, your device, all the components that make it up. Software is the same. We have something called an SBOM. Now, it's not usually three or 400 you know, items in length, but we still have an SBOM. And so an SBOM could, could consider uh, the compilers you use to build the software, the devices you use to manufacture, reproduce that, the Git, GitHubs of the world, that could be part of your bomb because it's your repository and you pull from your repository. Um, other things such as user notes or build instructions, uh, that could be part of your bomb. But it's, it's, it's the, the objects and components that you need to build it, so it's no different than a bomb, but we call it a, an S-bomb. I know there's guidance out there today. Uh, there's just such an influx of new software medical device applications today. Just curious if you have any insight on maybe how the regulations are changing or if there's any changes coming to help clarify some of that. So uh, let's take Galen for an example. So the, the connected world for medical device is new. Most medical devices aren't connected, but that's changing. And I often get the, the question is, isn't there risk in, in connecting software, medical device, to the Internet? And, and I, my answer is absolutely. But I think there's far more risk in not connecting medical devices in that imagine that, that, that child that has a diabetes device and it fails. Wouldn't the parent want to know about it? Or in our case, our, our neurostimulator would fail and the disease state would come back and we wouldn't know about it. Wouldn't you want to know about that? Or when that insulin pump gets deployed, wouldn't you want to know when, when that happens? Um, I worked for an LVAD company for a while, and uh, if that LVAD stops working, that patient dies in three to five minutes, and that's a heart pump that keeps patients alive. Wouldn't you want to know if that bearing is starting to fail and, and, and using predictive analytics to know that that bearing will fail three months in the future and you can take proactive actions? Uh, and so I think we're a connected world today, and, and there is risk. But I think there's far more risk in, in not knowing the state of your medical device, not knowing its condition, not being able to analyze all the data and be proactive about that. Yeah, I know you probably know a lot of people throughout this software as medical device industry. What, are your, what do you think percentage of those actually have good design controls in place? Hopefully everybody. <laughs> Um, I think, I mean, the mature medical device companies, yes. Uh, 
but the young ones, um, they don't know what they don't know. I mean, we spend a lot of time with incubators and accelerators, and there's a lot of smart people, PhDs from Stanford and Rice, uh, but they, they, they don't understand the importance of a quality management system or the regulatory pathway and the importance of documenting these things. And so I think some young companies may be at risk, but... Uh, one way to de-risk that, and, and you know, remember the FDA doesn't say you have to be ISO, 30, uh, ISO 1345 certified, but there's probably not a mature medical device company that's not, and the sooner you can get that, that certification or at least that mindset in place of, of, of the documentation and how you do it, I think it will drive down that risk. But uh, there's, there's certainly companies out there, uh, but that's, that's why we have oversight, and that's why we audit. One of the other things I think is challenging since there are so many new products out there and there aren't a lot of predicates is when to find those predicates. Uh, a lot of times you want to start early in the design control process because your intended use should drive some of your user needs and, and, and uh, design inputs. Uh, do you have any tips on how to find predicates in the first place and, and when you should start looking for those? So that, that's more of a, a clinical and regulatory. Uh, you're talking about predicates for a new therapy, right? To, yeah. To get your, your, your uh, device software, approved. Yeah. Uh, well, so probably most people know this, but the predicate is you, you f try to find a device out there that's already done what you've done, and, and you just you have a better mousetrap. So you find a predicate out there. Um, the FDA is, is, is getting more stingy in, in wanting to do de novo devices. The uh, device I was, it was a PMA and a PMAS. And so that's the most burdensome regulatory process to get approved or cleared by the FDA. Uh, but there's more search tools out there too. Uh, but my, my only answer is, is, you know, go out there, use the search, search tools, and there may or may not be a predicate um, out there for your device. I think you would say then that that shouldn't affect your design controls process. Absolutely not. And, and even class one devices, you need to have design controls in place. Uh, class two, you have to have uh, design controls in place. And of course, you have to have uh, class three. And I go back to one of my opening statements is that 85% of the standard is just good engineering, good project management sense. And so having those procedures documented in the end results in a better product. What does a DHF look like for a software as a medical device? So design history file is, is a document that, that historically documents the history of that design. Uh, the last project we did uh, had probably over 200 documents in it. And you think 200 documents in a DHF for a, for a year project, and part of it is... Your design input and design output, your memos, uh, we would have status meetings. That all went in because that is the history of it. Uh, one of the things uh, when, we, when I get involved with companies and I have to look at the requirements document and they're ready to submit to the FDA and their requirements revision is on number one, that's a red flag. Um, the last project we did was about nine months and our, our requirements document was on revision six. And it, it's somewhat burdensome to get that requirements document approved. But to answer that question on that, that hyper-fast software development cycle, those requirements should get approved at some state. And so if you're using a sprint or an agile process and you're done that project and the requirements document is at uh, revision uh, zero, nah, not so much. It should be at revision 20 or revision 30. The software tools allow you to do that. You can approve those requirements. It's not as burdensome as a paper system where you had to go chase down six different signatures. So there's tools out there, just leverage them. 
we all know the DHF is supposed to be living throughout the life software. You're going to be making more changes. A lot of companies that I work with have a new product team and then they have maybe a sustaining team where they hand that over. From your experience in software, is it best to have the people who worked on it initially to, to keep going with it throughout the life of the product? So there's, there's a service side of it where you're building software for other companies in the product. But yes, I mean, you want to retain that knowledge. Um, that knowledge is key because the, the decisions, and there's something called tribal knowledge where you make decisions and they might not be documented. So when you can document the, the minutiae of the decisions, it's better. But no, it, it, the the, in a perfect world, yes, you'd want the design engineers that designed it all the way through the sustaining. In reality, though, they move on to other projects. But hopefully they're still within the organization where you can go and tap in that knowledge. So I think it's important to you know, try to keep the people as much as you can, the design engineers, to go back and have that rich knowledge of why they made the decisions, why they did. We've talked about documenting things early, having early prototypes, building a good process, all the way through to creating a DHF and, and finally maintaining that after launch of your product. Any other tips to provide on the overall design control process? Just, again, document what you do and do what you document, but... Um, and you don't want to overburden yourself with documentation. And there is no right answer, but you want to have the right level of documentation that documents your design, that gets buy-in from all the team members uh, of it, that you have certain documents that are approved. You can go back and see who approved those documents. Um, but in your SOPs are living processes too. And so if you don't like it, you can change it. Um, and, and it's not easy, and I, I'm not up here to say it's easy just documenting. It, it, it isn't. It's very difficult to do. Um, but in the end, you have a standard. You have guidance documents that provide some, you know, roadmap on, on what you do, and then it just follows. What we do is we map the clauses into our SOPs, and at least, you know, you might agree or disagree on how we interpret that clause, but at least at, at that point in time when that document was signed off, that was our interpretation on that day. Thank you, Chris. That was very enlightening to me. And now I know we have some time for some questions from the audience. So we'll make sure, if you have any, we'll get you the microphone. Um, I have a question about Agile and the sprints. And if you're chunking up the, the software, say, and, you're, and the intent is to verify it some way at the end of each sprint, is that realistic that that, that, that would be your final formal verification or do you have to re-verify everything at the end when you're all done because of all the changes that took place? What, what's reasonable? That's a great question. So it, it depends, but what you don't want to do is implement a feature without a supporting requirement. So that's rule number one. So if you're going to start implementing features, you should have a requirement that, that has been approved. And, and, and you don't have to approve the whole document. You can approve that requirement that reflects what that feature is doing. But they need to stay in sync. They need to, to stay at the same revolution or cadence of, of that change. But, and you can do, in our case, you do unit testing. So that's a form of verification. But it's more at the developer. And you don't have that, that separation of independence. Uh, the best way to do it is, is verify the changes that you make at the requirement level, but at some point you snap it at version point one and you go through a verification effort. Um, and then at point two, you go through a verification effort. But in, in the end, uh, you can't do these little clumps. You, these little clumps of verification are, is good, but at the end, you have to lock down 100% of the requirements, lock down 100% of the test cases, 
lock down 100% of the software, and then you test it. And it might be 100 test cases or 300 test cases. But you, you, at some point, you have to do a complete verification from requirement one to requirement 100, test case one to test case 100. Does that make sense? My question is, so, so then you essentially have tested everything twice, once when, at the end of the sprint and then once at the end of the lab. Yeah, and, and why that is important is because in software, if you pull the thread over here, it may cause a catastrophic failure over here. And I've had that happen where you make a change and you test just that change for that one sprint, but at the end you have to test that change that's in that system because there be could a perturbation effect that you didn't know about, such as that change might have gobbled up all your memory, and you don't, you don't know that until you do the full final verification. When it comes to standards, there are so many standards that are there, and, you're, and especially if you're looking for a global product, it's mind-boggling with everything changing. Is there a cheat sheet or something that says, hey, uh, for these kinds of devices, these are the standards you need to, to comply? That's one question, and part two of it is, how do you interpret those standards? How do they apply to you? Because they're very broad. That's a great question. There's no right or wrong answer. Uh, my advice is, and there's nothing that says that you have to compliant, be compliant to all standards out there, because in reality, you can't. There's some standards you just can't be compliant with. But what's important is that you, you document the standards that you think are applicable to your device, and then you test to to those standards or you build your SOPs around those standards and then when you learn of another standard or what might happen is you become aware of another standard or another definition then you incorporate that in um, and, and that's what really what the Amargos of the world do is they help you with that they help you say if you're a software product you need all these different standards uh, I built a tool once that was that checklist and that we went out and 12, 14, 15 different standards, and we mapped them all into a software development process. Um, that is possible, uh, but, but it's hard. But the most important step is, is you try to be knowledgeable of the standards out there, and you document the standards, you write test cases against that SOPs, and then three weeks later, three months later, three years later, you become aware of another standard, you incorporate that in. So over time, you, you build that magic check, checklist. We'll have time for one more question after this one. Um, so, Gallon Data is not a SAMD company. It is more of a tool company, right? Say that one more time, please. So, you know, Gallon Data is not a SAMD company. It is a tool company. It's a, it, Galen Data is a SaaS company, software as a service. We right. are 100% a product. Right. And the goal of Galen Data is, is that... Let's take a heart pump, for example. So say you're the CEO of a heart pump company, and we'll just use four simple attributes. You have a patient ID, a serial number, an RPM sensor, and a temperature sensor. You want to connect that heart pump to the cloud, and you want to monitor that RPM. You create a data model using our drag-and-drop interface, no custom software, a data model of those four attributes. And from that, we create software libraries that you compile into. The whole goal of Galen Data is no custom software. It doesn't throw you into that expensive design loop. Just like Greenlight is, is that when you use their tool, they do all the verification. So what Galen does is we claim standard, all these standards, and then we test to those standards, and then we don't release every two weeks. <laughs> we, we're on a cadence of about twice a year, the product releases. Uh, but that's, it's, it's a product, and you model your data in the cloud, no custom software. 
So my question is with respect to those twice a year uh, release. So you have to validate your tool every time, right? After every release. Absolutely. And uh, do you uh, do you use any kind of automated uh, regression, uh, automated testing uh, for that, or is that all manual? We do a combination of automated testing and manual testing. So we do automated unit testing through a series of tools, and we do every time we do a build, we do testing throughout the night. But then at some point we snap, and we do a verification testing, and at some point, if it passes that, we'll release it to the field. And the other thing Galen does is that we issue certificates of compliance for the framework. Um, and then um, that's one thing we do. So we say we're compliant with all these standards, and, and we, we explicitly state what standards we're compliant with. And, and a customer might come back and say, we want you to be compliant with this standard. And we say, okay, but give us six months. Um, and the other thing Galen does, I think is importantly, is that when you go through the regulatory process, now, that does, you still have to qualify and verify your data model because that's what's changing. But the, the graphs and the credentials and all the framework that does the visualization, that's already been verified by Galen. But you, that doesn't alleviate the need. You still have to qualify or verify your specific data model as it's implemented in your device. Okay, thank you. Thank you. All right, we got time for one last question. I'll try to make it a meaty one. Uh, Howard Look from Tidepool again. So you talked a little before about validating the tools that you use for validation. You gave the example of getting in trouble because of Excel. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that Galen Data doesn't use, you don't run your own data centers, you didn't build your own servers, you're probably using AWS or Google Cloud, you're probably using GitHub and PagerDuty and all kinds of other things that all modern software companies use. How do you document what your expectations of those are. Like I'm guessing you can't fully verify that AWS is doing everything it's supposed to do. So what is the lightest weight possible way that you can verify that the underlying infrastructure that you depend on is doing what you say? So you're probably right. We, we do use most of those tools you said, uh, and, and, but it's a great question. So and let's even break it down to a simple, most probably when you write software, you use third-party libraries, all right? So how do we, in, in a previous life, we'd validate those. Uh, it, you buy a library, and there might, you buy a library, and there's 100 methods within that library, but you only use three. And so we start with writing requirements that define the behavior of those three methods. Then we, we have architects, risk analysis of those three methods, and then we test those three methods and then we, we write a verification some report claiming that we tested those messages. And so even though we, we might have a library that has 100 functions in it, we only use three, and I've been successful doing that, is that we claim that we've tested the three that we use, we didn't test or, or claim the 97 we didn't use. And that's real life. There's, there's no way I think you could be expected to test you know, COTS, commercial off-the-self software, because you just can't do it. It's not reasonable. So we, we do explicitly test the features we use of these COTS tools. So we test the features and components of the things we use for AEWS independently. Part of that's a trade secret, but again, we, we, we have requirements on in performance. You know, for example, we, we squirt data to a data store, in 0.3 seconds. So we test that from performance-wise. We, we test uh, longevity. Uh, we test 
can I squirt 100 elements in a second? We, have, we can test that. And so how we use the components of these data stores, we write requirements, we write independent test cases, and then we test that. Does that make sense? Now, I'm not here claiming that if we did use AWS, we're testing the full functionality of AWS. And that's the same with commercial operating. At one time, the FDA said you can't use commercial operating systems. You had to write your own or, or be able to source. Um, I was one of, the, I think, the first engineers to get a class three medical device approved on a COTS Windows platform. I tried to call Bill Gates and ask for the software. What, did you think? what do you think he said? <laughs> you, think, you think there's value in me doing a code review over Microsoft Windows? No. Uh, but what we did was, and I used this successfully, is that we documented how we used it. We locked out everything we could, and then we tested, and we're successful. I didn't t fully test Windows, but I did test Windows, or the components of Windows that we used, and I could verify very discreetly and objectively that requirements and test cases that exercises the components of that commercial operating system. All right, make, well, is that good? Did I answer that one right? Okay. Well, thank you again, Chris. That was very insightful, and we really appreciate it. All right. Thank you all for coming out. It was fun.